0: To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offsprings. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ this is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give a life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law.
1: Well, good morning, church family. Morning. Let's, uh, let's pray one more time before we get into the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we thank you for what a great privilege we have to be able to meet here this morning. Lord, we know that your word does not return to you void, but it accomplishes the purpose that you've set for it. Lord, I pray this morning that you speak to your people. Lord, lay me aside and speak to through me. And Lord, may we spur one another on to love and good deeds. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So my name is Jared Young. I am the student pastor here at NBC. I would just like to make it known that no dodgeballs will be used in today's sermon. Also, if you see me walking weird, I have an old knee injury that has come back to haunt me. So if I accidentally fall, uh, we're just going to pray. But this morning, we are going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 21. So if you want to turn with me, you can. And uh, the past couple of weeks, except for last week, which was VBS Sunday, we have been going through the book of Galatians. Greg Lingle started off in chapter 1, and then Matt Stevens preached in chapter 2. And Greg laid out the idea of what Paul was dealing with, that he was dealing with some rather, uh, what would you call it, curmudgeonly spiritual leaders or troublesome spiritual leaders. He was preaching that Jesus Christ was the way of salvation and people were coming in after and saying, no, in order to be in right standing with God, you have to do these other things. And so he's writing to the Galatians to deal with that. And then Matt we talked about how the idea of justification leads to, to freedom from certain things in our lives. Now, I want to make it clear, justification is the right standing before God. It's how you're made right in the sight of God the Father. So this morning, in Galatians chapter 3, we're going to look at freedom again. And we're going to look at how Paul explains that you have three, freedom of this promise It's freedom of promise. But what we're going to do, if you'll bear with me, is we're going to work through the passage backwards. So we're going to start in verses 19 through 21. And it says, why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not for if the law if sorry for if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness or justification would indeed be by the law in verse 22 i'm going to read that one as well it says but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so the promise by faith so that the promise by faith in jesus christ might be given to those who believe so the first thing we see is that we've got what would what would the world be like without this promise. Now, the idea here is, just so that you understand, we're not talking about just any promise, we're talking about a specific promise. And you might be asking yourself, well, what is that promise? We're gonna get to that in, in a little bit, okay? And he says, what would happen if we didn't have this? Well, basically, what would happen is very simply, we would be dead in our sin. Verse 22, it says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Everything was in sin. Our world, you're born, and we don't have to teach people how to do incorrect things. We know how to do that. That's our nature. That's what we default to. We don't default to good. We don't default to righteousness. We don't default to preferring other people. We default to sin and selfishness. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, if you want to stick it up there on uh, the screen, that'll be the first uh, passage I'm going to read. Don't worry. If you want to turn there, you can. I've got to turn there too, so it'll take me just a second. Ephesians 2 sorry, 1 through 3 says this. It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I think it's interesting that when we talk about freedom in our world today, particularly when it comes to a spiritual sense, I think we often think that freedom is this idea of being free of the parameters of an all-knowing God. And yet Paul says that's the very opposite of freedom Because if you don't have an all-knowing God that sets you free to something, then all you're left with is your base nature. And what you default to is that, and you can't escape it. It says you were by nature children of wrath. See, freedom is not the absence of God, but the presence of that. Because left to our own devices, left to our (laughs) our own nature, we cannot escape who we are. So before we moved here, my wife and I lived in a small town in western Kansas. And when I mean small town, I mean 3,200 people. And when you left town, all you had was fields. That was it. Well, we lived in this house that somebody had loaned us for a while. It was on a, on a farmland. And an oil company had said that they found, they they had done surveys and they think there might have been oil on the property. So they wanted to come and drill. So they came and they brought all their big equipment. And one of the things that they do when they set up a drill is uh, they dig a gigantic pit. It's like 14 feet deep. And I want to say probably 10 yards long It's huge. And it's for water that they put through the drill to keep the drill bits and all of that kind of stuff from from overheating. Now, it's not the kind of pit you want to go swim in. Let's clarify that. And when they're done, they fill it back in. Well, my wife and I had a couple of dogs, and uh, one of our dogs was fairly savvy and understanding of things. She's not one to go running helter skelter into stuff, and uh, she's pretty smart about her surroundings. The other one was not. And this, this pit had been filled in, and it was January, February, it was cold, it was icy. And things had iced over. Well, the dog made it out, you know, a few, a few feet, and it was fine. Well, then it started to sink because that pit was like a big, gigantic milkshake, and it couldn't get anywhere. And so I'm inside doing something, and I hear my wife screaming, and there's this dog out in the middle of this 14-foot sinkhole struggling to get out. I'm like, what in the world do I do? So put some plywood out. Extended as far as I could, and then I got out there. And as soon as I put my foot in, I'm knee deep in whatever. And I'm like, I can't, I can't, I don't know that I can get out there. And I'm just watching this dog struggle. It can't go anywhere, it can't do anything, it can't get itself out. And so I was like, Well, how do you deal with ice? Coming from New England, that's a fairly common thing. And you lay down and you try to distribute your weight as much as possible. So I army crawled in the ice and in the mud. Out to the middle of this thing and pick this dog up, and it's absolutely covered in mud. I'm absolutely covered in mud. I'm shivering. I get the dog back on to dry land, and it just takes off and runs away from me. Like, You're welcome. The point that I make is that we're often like that dog. We think that, that freedom is the absence of somebody paying attention. Have you ever had a pet or a dog take off as soon as you open the door? Like, freedom! They're gone. And you're like, well, I might see them next week. And that's exactly how this dog operated with me. Not with my wife. I mean, he loved my wife to death. Would not go anywhere without her. Did not care about me. But we do the same thing. We think the, the, the release of fetters is freedom, and it's not. Understanding that we have limitations and that there's a God that's watching and protecting and caring for us because he doesn't want us. He has put things in our lives to keep us from that kind of situation is important. But we don't understand that if we don't understand promise. The next thing we see is that righteousness doesn't give life, but new life should breed righteousness. It's the idea, same passages of verses, it says if there was a law that could give life, then, then freedom or and justification would have been by a law. He said, if, if there was a law that could give you life, then don't you think God would have given that to you? If you could simply do something that would give you a brand new life, God would have done that. But guess what? That's not how it works. And Greg, a couple weeks ago or a month ago, talked about this idea of a new life. Do you understand if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have a new life. It's not your old life that's been recycled and revamped. You have a new life. And the only way that that comes is through washing and regeneration of the spirit. In other words, God makes you new. Completely and totally. And he says that doesn't come because of something you do. James chapter 2, verse 23, says this. Well, that's 25. 23 says this, And the scripture was fulfilled, saying that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So we have this idea, and here's where we get into the promise. Okay? God gave Abraham a promise. Now, when we talk about the book of Genesis, the most common promise we think of is the promise in Genesis 15 where he said, I will make you a great nation. But the promise that God is giving to Abraham here and the promise that's referenced in James chapter 2, verse 23 is the idea that, or the, the promise where God says in Genesis twelve seven that I will give your offspring, Jesus, this land. Because I'm gonna give him the thing that I've promised to you. And it says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Belief on the promises of God is counted as righteousness. That's why in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, it says, for by grace you are saved through faith and this not of yourselves or this not of human effort belief in God does not come through human effort. It does not come right standing before God does not come because of some effort that we make on our own part to make God go oh would you look at that he believed in me well who would have thought it's not how God operates he's not taken by surprise he set this up and this is the way it works no effort we do makes it Right, but it's belief in Jesus Christ. So then we move back up to verses 17 and 18. So that's 19 through 21. 17 and 18 say this this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes through the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise." So what we see here is this idea of of a couple of terms. One, we have this idea of ratification or ratified. Ratified simply means that it's a covenant that's been verbally or otherwise entered into. It's a sacred covenant. So God ratified this covenant that he gave to Abraham, also to Isaac, also to Jacob, and then the law shows up 430 years after he ratifies it to Moses. So does the law negate the covenant that God set up? Absolutely not. You can't annul it. You can't, you can't get rid of it. And it says, because if you could, then the inheritance wouldn't come by promise, but God gave it to Abraham through a promise. When you're made new in Jesus Christ, one of the things that comes with that is an Inheritance. But it's not an inheritance here on this earth. It's an inheritance that is incorruptible. It will not rust. It will not fade away. And no one can take it from you. Nobody can take it from you. And that inheritance only comes through promise. That inheritance also does not come through the law. It does not come through the right things you do. It does not come through your own effort. It can only come because it was given to Abraham through a promise. Romans 4, 1 through 4, reiterates that exact idea. And it says this, uh, again, I'm turning there. I do not have my Bible marked. So Romans 4, 1 through 4, says this, it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a, as, not counted as a gift, but as a due." Paul's reiterating the same idea and he says, look, righteousness, right standing before God, the thing where God looks at you and says, I declare you clean, I'm giving you a new life, that is either the work and the promise of a sovereign God or the perseverance of a sinful person. It can't be both. And spoiler alert, it's not the second one. He says, who do you trust in more, your own perseverance because we're bent to sin and selfishness, or do you want to trust in the promise of the God that created the universe, holds the the stars in his hand, and knows each one of them by name? And he promised you something. Which one is it? What's the first one? That's how it came. That's why it's there. The other thing that he states in this is he says, look, he says, um, he says, in 17, this is what I mean. If the law came 430 years afterwards, does it annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void? He says, it cannot change. What God has ratified, no man can modify We can't stick things on to what God has already done and say, ooh, look at us. It's the sovereignty of God, but also, you know, we're going to make it work for us as well. That can't happen. God is sovereign. God gave us this inheritance. God justifies us through the death and the resurrection of his son alone. And then what? Well, we'll get into that some other time. That's what's called sanctification. It's the idea of of making your life holy in in the sight of God. And guess what happens? That's Christ doing everything through you again, okay? That new life that you will have in Christ, it's only found in Christ. And the only way that we can do that is through Christ. We can't do that on our own effort. And yet we try so very, very hard. People all the time say, well, I'm going to do this for God. I struggle with that statement. Because in Samuel, Samuel's talking to Saul and he says, Saul, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed the word of the Lord better than the fat of rams. We don't have anything that we can bring to God that God hasn't already given us. It's not like we have effort or ideas or things that are better than what God has already asked us to do. We simply need to be obedient to those things. Sorry, I'm going to get a drink of water here. Verses 15 and 16 say this. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say offsprings referring to many, but offspring referring to Christ. So this is life with promise. This is life with promise. Because from the beginning, this is how it was always meant to be. God didn't start writing a story in Genesis. God didn't start a work in Genesis and automatically change it to work differently after Genesis happened. The thing that he started in the very beginning is the thing he's gonna end at the very end. It's all of the same work. It's all of the same story. It's all of the same account. We don't change it. We don't modify it. We don't take God by surprise. Yet, we have a responsibility in it. God has asked us in our new life to do things because he's given us that life. Because he's instilled and put his own spirit within us, we are then to do things that honor and glorify him. It's all been about him from the beginning. It's never been about us. That's why after Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it comes verse 10, where it says that we have been created to do good works that he has set up in advance for us to do. Do you live your daily life with that statement in mind? Do you live and ask the Lord to give you eyes to see, ears to hear the opportunities that he's already placed for you that day? Do we trust that that's how God operates? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. But the Bible says that's exactly what he's done each and every day of your life. He's already prepared it in advance. Genesis, or sorry, Galatians 3, 28 and 29, says this. I'm gonna use some of the rest of the passages of scripture. It says, in twenty-eight and twenty-nine it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, there is one there are they are all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. He said the promise, Paul is saying the promise that God gave to Abraham extends to everyone no matter where you're from, no matter what your background, and no matter who you are. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your savior, if you believe that he died on the cross and rose from the grave, then you, if you believe he's the son of God, then you have that promise. He says we're all one in Christ. Why? Because it's all Christ working through each and every one of us. We cannot do this life without the renewing power of Jesus Christ. We can't do it. And the last thing is this. It's the statement. I've already made it. What God has ratified, no man can modify. If you think that that God started something in Genesis and he's tarrying or waiting or hasn't completed it or won't or it's changed, I, I encourage you to read the rest of the book. It's a rather fantastic, fantastic journey. If, you've, if you haven't read the whole scripture, I encourage you to do it. It's, it's remarkable. What God begins here is exactly what he completes here. And Revelation... We're not don't worry, we're not we're not gonna start a, a series in Revelation. Okay? There have been plenty of those, uh, and, and we don't have time to open that that can. But Revelation is the culmination of everything that He's been doing throughout history. Do you feel weary looking around your world today? Do you feel brokenhearted at what you see in your world today? Do you feel like something needs to be done about your world today? Guess what? God's gonna take care of it. It's probably not gonna be in our time frame and the way we want, but he's going to end all of this suffering, all of this pain, all of this agony, once and for all. But right now, right now, He's asking us to be salt and light in our world today. There's a little book in the Old Testament called uh, Habakkuk. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. God is having a conversation with Habakkuk, and Habakkuk asks him why the wicked are prospering in the world. He says, Lord, how come the righteous are being judged and, and the evil men are prospering? And God says, I'm paraphrasing: Habakkuk, hold your horses because eventually I'm not gonna hold back my horses. I'm gonna send them and I'm gonna come and I'm gonna punish all of the things that you're telling me are wrong with this world and I'm gonna take care of it. And it says that there will not be the opportunity for people to hide from it. And then he says, and then I will sit in my holy temple and all will be quiet before me. As a kid, you ever been doing something you shouldn't have been doing? And your mom is like maybe yelling at you, and you're not paying attention to it at all. And then one of two things happens either she says the statement, your father's gonna deal with you when he gets home, which is like the ultimate impending sense of doom. Or you have the unlucky privilege to have your father actually be hearing what's going on and then his gigantic baritone voice comes over and goes, hey! And you're like, my bad. I feel a little bit, I feel a little bit like when we, when we read Habakkuk, when we read these Bibles, eventually the Lord says enough. Enough. But he has a time frame for all of that. We're not, we're not, we can't control that time frame. We can't dictate that time frame. But here we are right in the middle of it. So what do we do with it? Well, first of all, understand this. This idea of justification, I'm going to sit on this for a second. Justification... Is this big word? I think sometimes we we don't really understand how it operates. And Greg did a good job a little while ago. He had the stools out here, and he and he stuck them out and he said, Okay, there's there's justification and sanctification and glorification. And we all go, Ooh, glorification, I want that. That sounds great. We'll we'll get there. But first we have to understand justification. It's how we as sinners are made right before a holy God. How does that happen? If our default is to sin, our default is to be within ourselves, then we can't do that, can we? There's nothing inside of me that that separates me from anyone else or sets me apart from anyone else. Yet God in his sovereignty works in my life and then I am declared righteous and I am given a new life. And I am given his person and his spirit within me. Then you have this idea of, of sanctification. And I had a professor that, um, he, he described sanctification like this. Now understand, every analogy breaks down, okay? But he says, sanctification is like this. He says, I love peanut butter and jelly. So when I go to the kitchen and I want to get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I go and I grab, you know, my preferred method of, of putting that peanut butter and jelly on bread. I love white bread. I grab two pieces of white bread. I go to the cabinet. I grab the jelly or the peanut butter. I go to the fridge. I grab the jelly. I stick them on the counter. He goes, I have just sanctified myself some peanut butter and jelly. He goes, I've pulled them out from where they are and I've set them aside and I'm going to do something special with them. So that's That's the idea of sanctification in the Christian life. He says, what's happening is it's this God working in you to separate you from the world that you're in because you're in it, but you're not of it. And he's setting you aside, and he's doing a work in you that's special and unique, and only he can do. That's sanctification. And that sanctification leads ultimately to what Paul's been talking about is this glorification one day we'll see Jesus in heaven and we will be made right and we will be made clean and we will have no sin. Nothing will separate us from the presence and the knowledge and the glory of God. And won't that be a glorious day? So who's justification for? Everyone. Greg's also said for a few, uh, from a, a few times from the pulpit that the gospel is for everybody Everywhere. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not segregated to certain people. It's not only made for specific people. It's made for everyone everywhere. So what does that look like? What does that mean for you? Well, you have the opportunity each and every day to influence people in your circle with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it happens many different ways. Myself, I am, uh, I'm the kind of guy that, that if, if somebody opens the door just like a, a little bit, I'm going to stick my foot in there, and I'm just, to, I'm just going to give it to them, and I'm going to give it to them straight. When I went to Bible school, we had this thing that we did called open-air evangelism, where we went down to some pretty pretty rough places of town, and we just walked up to people, and were like, hey, can I share, share, with, Jesus, share with you uh, Jesus? You ever done that before? Any, any, anybody? It's kind of really nerve-wracking, isn't it? I mean, you have no idea what you're going to get, and you have no idea the situation that you're going to be in. Now, I thrived on that, because I love to debate. Um, and there are times that I will actually debate, and I've de- even debated with our students, and they're pretty convinced that I believe something that I don't actually believe, because I'm just, you know, I want them to understand it. We We were talking about, something a while ago in Sunday school, and I had one student just kind of look at me and go, well, give us the answer. And I was like, no, I want you guys to understand how to get the answer. If I give it to you, then, then you won't be able to get it yourself. My wife is not that kind of person. My wife, um, she, she hates open-air evangelism with a burning passion. However, my wife, and I do not know how to do this, and I'm pretty sure this is why the Lord had me marry her, she will be talking to people and they will just magically start reading the Bible. I'm like, what sorcery is this? (laughs) Like all of a sudden it's just like, oh yeah, I read through the whole Bible. I'm like, "I, I tell people to do that all the time and nothing ever happens. But it happens with her. And she has her own way of doing things, and the Lord works marvelously in her and through influence, and that's what happens. It's unique to you. What's your style? I don't know. How do you go about it on a daily basis? I don't know. But it's not, it's not a cookie-cutter thing that you can just say, oh, well, this works for this guy, so it must work for me. Sure, it's a great pattern, but God has placed you in a unique spot in life and said, hey, I want you and the way you live and the way you talk and the way you conduct yourself to be this specific light in this specific place. And it's unique to you. And you have a unique sphere of influence that I don't have. All right, so justification is for everyone justification also promises an inheritance you understand if you believe in jesus christ if you have that new life then you have an inheritance there's no if there's no and there's no but you have an inheritance in christ jesus but the kicker is it's not here it's not here that inheritance comes when we get that third chair or table glorification. That's our inheritance. That's what we're working toward. Each and every day of our lives, it, when we live it for Jesus Christ, we should be working and we should be looking for that inheritance, not what we have here. James, book of James says. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs to the kingdom that he has promised to them that love him? If we, if we truly have our eyes and our hearts and our minds set on that inheritance, then everything else in this world becomes lesser. The old hymn says, and everything on this earth becomes strangely lesser dim, strangely dim. Imagine what our lives would be like if we're pursuing God so much that all of a sudden we look around and everything in this world just becomes dim, a dim reflection. Because, I want you to look at this. If you think that, if you think that that this all of this is for this is for nothing, or through your own effort, Revelation. Sorry, I messed up the the slide. Guys are gonna be like, Oh no, he's going back. Revelation chapter twenty two, verses twelve and sixteen says this. Revelation 22, 12 says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And then in 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. What I started in Genesis through Abraham, I, God, am going to complete it in revelation because i am the root of david i am the bright and morning star i am the way the truth and the life i am the good shepherd i am the bread i am the living water i am the beginning and the end the alpha and the omega and i am that i am it's the, it's the whole, it's the whole thing from the beginning to the end but right now, Paul's trying to tell the Galatian people, look, this, this comes about strictly and solely because of who Christ is, not because of you. Because justification is the beginning of the Christian walk, not the end of it. Justification is the start of the Christian walk. You are made clean, you are made right, you are declared righteous. Now, now What? now start walking in that. And each and every day it's going to be a battle. Paul says in Romans he says the things that I want to do I don't do and the things that I do want to do I or I don't want to do I do them, but it is not I, but the flesh which dwells in me. We have the responsibility and the battle each and every day to be resting in the work of Christ in order to watch Christ renew us each and every day so that we can walk in the things that he has planned and we don't walk in the old way of living. We don't walk in the flesh. We don't walk according to the sin nature. In high school, I played soccer and uh, I, uh, I have a, a collection of, of soccer cleats. Now, some of you may know what those are. Some of you may not. But one of the things that I was told you did not do with soccer cleats is you did not walk on concrete or pavement or anything because it wears down the studs on your cleats. Same for football or baseball, I would imagine. Um, so, So I tried not to do that because what happens is even when you play in on the pitch or on the field, that happens anyway. And there's a certain point where you are wearing a cleat and It can no longer be worn because it's so uncomfortable. It just doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Tennis shoes are the same for me. I kill tennis shoes. They are, I'm pretty sure their life expectancy with me is half of what a normal person gets out of them. I mean, I met this guy one time that had a pair of shoes. He's like, oh yeah, I've had these for 15 years. I'm like, "15, 15 years? I'm like, I'm lucky if I get 15 months out of mine. But just like that causes you discomfort and things like that, our old life should be causing that same kind of discomfort, not something that we want to go back to and visit all the time. It's not the fluffy, cuddly thing that you keep and hold on to when you're having a bad day. It should be the pebble in your shoe. It should be the shoe that doesn't work properly. It should be the knee that doesn't function the right way. And yet so often we treat our sin nature as if it's the thing that we want to keep around. God says you can't do that. Because because once you're justified, you should be working toward spiritual maturity. It's like having a bike. How many of you have learned to ride a bike? Okay. How many of you learned with training wheels? Okay. How many of you still have the training wheels on your bike? Didn't think so. When we, as we mature, as we grow in the Lord, those things start to fall off as we become closer to Christ because we should be pursuing maturity. Justification is the start of all of that. And this idea of the law, it says it was put in place because of our sin. It showed us that you cannot, you cannot justify yourself. You can't do it. You want to add this thing on? So the people were coming in, these Judaizers were coming in and say, well, you have, to be, you have to be circumcised. Oh, you want to add that one on there? Okay, well, let's look at the rest of them. There are roughly 630 laws. And if you offend in one, you're guilty of all of them. So can you justify yourself? No. But you should be, once you understand that, once you understand that it's only through Jesus Christ you're justified, then you start this new life. Then you start being made new. Then you start working to spiritual maturity. But it only happens if you understand that you cannot, will not save yourself. And yet so many of us still rest in our own effort and in our own ideas and in our own Perceived greatness. And all the Lord is asking us to do is obey. Obey what he's already put in place in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for the book of Galatians. Lord, what a marvelous testament to what you're doing in and through us right here, right now, today. Lord, may we rest in your justification. May we... um, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, may they not leave this building before they make that right. And Lord, may we, may we commit to that new life that we have in you. And we ask all these things in your name, amen.